0: Sensitivity is not weakness. Sensitivity is strength. Vulnerability is strength. You know the vibes. What's up y'all? It's your girl Jazz. Welcome back to another episode of Vulnerable Vibes. Today, we are wrapping up the attachment style series. We are in part three and we're talking about the disorganized, aka the fearful avoidant attachment style. It kind of has two names. We'll go between those two names throughout the episode. So I just want to put that out there. Um, But yeah, we're talking about this attachment style today, and we're also just addressing some other important things about just attachment styles in general, as well as some of the questions that you all have submitted, whether it was through TikTok, through Instagram, wherever. I made sure that I included a lot of questions that people were asking, and we're going to have them answered today. And just want to put a disclaimer out there, just because this series is ending doesn't mean I'll stop talking about this. I'm going to always talk about attachment styles, whether it's on here, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram, and feel free to hit me up and ask me questions or just to do more research on your own, because this is such a deep topic that you'll learn something new every time you try to research it, every time you'll learn something new. I, I continuously learn new things about attachment styles every day, even though I pretty much am well-versed in it. I still learn things. You never stop learning, especially when it comes to mental health. But anyway, moving on, we have a special guest joining us today. Her name is Nicola Pierre-Smith. She is a licensed professional counselor based out of Philadelphia. She's also known as Melanated Women's Health, which is a platform that she created to provide a culturally affirming and anti-oppressive therapy space for people who have been marginalized because of their social identities. She is an amazing woman with a lot of accolades. She attended university in Jamaica and America, completed trainings in clinical supervision and transgender education at Temple University. And outside of clinical practice, she offers supervision services. Um, She also has a wide range of workshop leadership and facilitation skills. For example, she contributed to mental wellness events for brands and companies such as Essence. Um, She was also the director of a behavioral health agency. And she's been featured on numerous platforms like Huffington Post, Essence, The Washington Post, Bustle. She is really amazing. I Love her content. I've been obsessed with her content for a long time. So I'm really happy she was able to join us today. And she is a licensed professional counselor, like I said. So her insight is expert insight, expert words of wisdom. And so I really want you all to take in everything she's saying. And feel free to hit her up or hit me up if you have questions. I'll make sure that her information is available to you all. Make sure you follow her, get into her content. It's amazing, like I said. Anyways, let's get into the episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. I'm a big fan of your content on Instagram. So I was I didn't even think you would respond. <laughs> but I'm you
1: know, I get that all the time. People are like, they don't think you will respond. Do people not respond even to say I'm unavailable?
0: Um, I don't know. A lot of people when they when they have really great content and they have like just all these accolades, it's kind of hard to reach them. <laughs> so
1: yeah.
0: I, Yes, yeah, so I guess I was just like, let me just give it a shot, but I'm so glad you you agreed to do this. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So you can start by just telling me, telling us about who you are, what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. So my name is Nicola Pierce-Smith. I'm a mental health group practice owner in Philadelphia, licensed professional counselor in Pennsylvania, create mental health content on Instagram and on TikTok under the moniker Melanated Women's Health.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So what made you get, well, Like, what was it that made you want to get started in this field? So um,
1: I'm originally from Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. It's the capital of the country. And mental health issues aren't really, there's a stigma against mental health in Jamaica, so there's not much resources that are devoted to it. There's actually only one psychiatric hospital that services 2.8 million people in the country. So um, initially I was moving more towards business, economics, accounting, go figures, now I'm a business owner. Um, and by the time I was finishing high school, I was introduced to sociology Um, introduced to sociology and then become became more fascinated with culture with people with behaviors and how the mind works and then at the time I had huge ambitions to help fill the gap with the mental lack of mental health resources locally so that's kind of my meandering way into the field
0: Wow, you know that's crazy. Now that you say you're from Jamaica, I can hear the accent a little bit. Can you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's awesome. And yeah, um, just going back to what you said, the stigma is it's 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 a it's a big one, especially in um, Caribbean countries. Um, mm-hmm. it's like kind of non-existent when it comes to just caring for your mental health. So, I can imagine just that goal of trying to close that gap.
1: Yeah. And actually, when I was in grad school, my master's thesis compared the Jamaican culture with the American culture as it relates to psychological help seeking. Initially, what I thought would happen is that Americans would be more likely to seek mental health services in comparison to the Jamaican population. Mm -hmm. But actually, what I found is that culture wasn't the determining factor. It was really race. the population I used was in Miami very diverse and what we realized it's actually more the white population that'd be more willing to seek psychological services regardless of culture yeah so that yeah
0: so that makes it even like a tougher um (laughs) a tougher bridge to cross because it's kind of it's not as small as you think yeah definitely. Well, thank you so much for just giving us background on who you are, why you got into this field. So, um in my last couple episodes, I talked about attachment styles. This is the like attachment style series. So in part 1, um we talked about just gaining self-awareness and education and how that's kind of like the first step to to moving towards healing. Um and so being educated on attachment styles can really help us kind of Look at how we interact with others and kind of how we even interact with ourselves, how we perceive things, how we just look at things when it comes to our relationships, um, relationships with our parents, caregivers, uh, significant others, friends. Um, and so we talked about attachment styles, we introduced it, we talked about what they were, we went through each, all four of the attachment styles, and then in part two, we kind of dug deeper and talked about how we can heal from an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style. Um, and today in this part, we're going to talk about more about a disorganized attachment style and how we can move towards moving out of the disorganized space into a more secure space or a fearful, avoidant um, I know it's kind of two names for it, but so we're kind of talking about how we can heal from kind of the, some of the attachment wounds that we have, if we do have a fearful avoidance style and just how we can move to a more secure one. So what, in your opinion, what is the toughest thing about having a fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment style? Like, What is the core thing that you think is hard for people to kind of navigate through?
1: So we can talk about attachment styles forever. So it's actually really good that you've been doing it in series, so it's digestible. Um, with regards to fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment, it's really anxious avoidant attachment style that we're talking about, which is a mixture of the anxious attachment style that you said you've already spoken about and the avoidant style. Um, intersections between the two coming together and the difficulty that I encounter in working with clients or even seeing it, coworkers, friendships, um, things like that, is that people struggle to get their needs met or they form quick conclusions about themselves and others that really blocks them from forming meaningful relationships with people.
0: Yeah. Definitely, yes. I like what you said um, when you said they these people are just not used to getting their needs met. And so that translates into their relationships with other people. Um yeah. so a lot of people was at were asking me, can you have more than one? Can you have all four? Um I did uh, answer that saying that you definitely can have more than one. Um what's your take on that? Can you can a person have all four attachment styles?
1: So Not necessarily all four, though it can have more than one. So I think this is where people may have some confusion in that there are some intersections or some overlapping qualities between some attachment style, though you may fall more predominantly on one of the attachment styles. Something that I would recommend is... attached the book.com this is where you can do a free quiz on your attachment style i think it's maybe 17 or 18 questions don't quote me on that but it's very short and you'll get some results from that so i think what people can have is avoid an attack avoidant attachment style where there's overlap between like I said earlier the anxious and the avoidant but someone who has an avoidant attachment style they're not necessarily also going to have an attachment style that's anxious because the anxious avoidant style it's more of a pursuer gets worried easily uh, may engage in some protest behaviors like maybe texting often or calling often or wanting constant reassurance. Whereas with the person who presents with an avoidant attachment style, their protest behavior may be want to withdraw, they need more time to themselves to decompress, or they may push someone away if it's overwhelming them. So because those are so opposite, it's very difficult for us to say that someone will maybe have both at the same time unless it's actually an anxious avoidance style which you were saying earlier it's more the fearful preoccupied or disorganized presentation
0: right yeah thank you so much so um how do you prevent your insecure attachment style from passing down to your child? A lot of people were asking me that they're, um, they become more aware based on my series. And now they're like, okay, well, I have a child. I don't want my child to experience this. Um, How do I stop this? Like, what do I do to prevent this from becoming generational?
1: Yeah, so the people who are asking this, obviously they're already trying to engage in conscious parenting, that they're trying to self-reflect and see what adjustments can be changed. So the first step is recognizing what insecurities you may have as a parent, what insecurities you may have as a partner, and then recognizing that we all, regardless of our developmental age we all have a need for safety love and availability that's consistent so it's recognizing that your child or your children may have those needs and showing up in a way that they're able to build a secure attachment to you so they know that you always be there you'll love and care for them even when you're engaging in discipline. I think sometimes especially with you know a therapist. In con stores, we do our best to put content out. And sometimes there's a tendency to maybe glorify one attachment style over the other. And the one that's typically glorified is the secure attachment. We all want to be securely attached. That's our goal. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should demonize ourselves if we realize that, oh, we're more on the anxious spectrum or the avoidance spectrum, or it's more complicated where we're anxious avoidant. It's recognizing that this is your attachment style, and it's just an inefficient way of meeting the need for love, safety, and availability. So when you can face yourself with compassion, then it's more easier for you to look at, okay, what are some ways you can uh, shape shift to get those same needs met in a more secure way
0: right yeah I agree compassion is so important when it comes to just even just being becoming more educated on looking at what type of style you have when I first learned about attachment styles I I was like feeling so down about it because I was like Mm -hmm. like you said I kind of overanalyze just like oh I don't have a secure attachment style I'm not secure um yeah. but I have to my therapist told me the same thing you have to have some compassion because it's it's normal everyone not everyone has an, a secure attachment style every day um even if they did have secure parents or relationships with their caregivers or whoever it was so Yes, compassion is really important. And I try to tell my listeners that with everything that you learn when it comes to mental health, you have to take time to kind of take in what you're learning and not overcomplicate it and not kind of be down on yourself like, oh, this is what I have. Now that now I'm I'm not normal. You know, it's we're all normal. So um yeah, we all Yeah,
1: yeah, you're not doomed because you realize that you're you don't have a secure Attachment, there is still hope. And on the opposite end, too, it's that if you find that you've chosen a partner who doesn't have a secure attachment, who may be more anxious or avoidant, it doesn't mean that they can't be a good partner. What would determine if it would be a good fit is if they're willing to work on the attachment. So together, needs can be met
0: for both people involved. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, So before we get into more questions, I wanted to give you an opportunity just to share some things you feel like people with a fearful, avoidant um, attachment style should do to kind of shift out of that style.
1: So the first thing they would need to do is recognize their own cues that the fear or the anxiety is activated. If they don't have language for that, it's going to be difficult for them to then move into action. So the first thing is self-awareness. I heard you say it earlier that you may have talked about that in the first series of the attachment. Yeah, so maybe people can go back to that. It starts with self-awareness. After that, it's working on your communication skills to then say, hey, this is how I'm feeling right now identifying what activated that feeling and then trying to figure out what is it that you need to regain some calmness within the situation because sometimes you'll realize that all right you may have become really activated and it's past stuff that's coming up that doesn't match
0: the current situation that you're involved in right yeah um, I want to go back to what you said about um, just that pat, those past things coming up. Um, how would someone work through their triggers when it comes to uh, fearful avoidant? Um, or can you identify some triggers um, that can trigger people specifically with this attachment style?
1: Yeah, so um, something that could trigger it is an argument that not because you have an argument with a partner, coworker, worker parent, friend, that the relationship is going to disintegrate. So that's one thing. If they're seeing an argument or a conflict is presented and they've already made the conclusion that this is it, it won't work, it's recognizing that there's some faulty beliefs around that and engaging with the person to problem solve what led to the conflict in the first place. So that's one thing. Conflicts our arguments. Another thing is sometimes someone that is fearful, preoccupied, more along the anxious avoidant spectrum of attachment is that they may not necessarily communicate well because they have a belief that others can engage in mind reading. So they expect that people ought to know what they want, what they're thinking, what's going on, for them and by not speaking up they really sabotage themselves because their need doesn't get met and then it fulfills this belief that this person can't meet their needs and they need to reconcile
0: right yeah thank you so much and and like you said um a lot of people with this attachment style feel they struggle with communication um Mm -hmm. and sometimes they can self-sabotage by just not expressing what they need and what they want um do you feel like people with this attachment style should um be in relationships because a lot of people feel that with this attachment style they can't be in relationships for they need to kind of first address these attachment styles how would you what or what um knowledge would you give to someone who does want to pursue a relationship but they feel like they shouldn't um with this attachment style
1: yeah So um, to what I was saying earlier, if you have this attachment style, it's not that you can't be a suitable partner to someone else. It's what is your level of willingness to work through the issues? And um, how, I guess, how committed are you to see things through to recognize that it's not with attachment wounds Or attachment issues, you can't work on them in isolation. They come up when you start engaging in relationships with people. Because if you're by yourself, you're cool. Your attachment style isn't affecting you. So it's what's your commitment to work that through with someone. Also, what's the other person's tolerance? Their self awareness. Do they have the skills to not necessarily treat your attachment style? Because your partner can't be your therapist or counselor, but do they have their own emotions regulation skill and their own self-monitoring skills to not get activated by what you have going on? So it's that assessing what your partner's skill sets. What are they bringing to the relationship? And then the third one, I would say is... Um, really consistency and willingness to continually engage in trial error and a willingness to acknowledge that a part of it stems from past issues and not necessarily, again, what's going on in the present relationship. It's more that that's
0: activating what happened before. Um, Do you think a person with this attachment style, um, can work on their their this without therapy because it is a little more different than the than a regular person with an with an anxious or an avoidant because it's kind of a combination. Do you think um, they can work on this alone
1: and alone without professional help? You're saying yes. So they probably can. It would take mad long, you know, and it will be. A lot of trial and error, probably a lot of hurt in terms of them hurting themselves emotionally and hurting others along the way. It's kind of like, we probably could build our own cars, but how long would that take if you're not trained in engineering, in mechanics, in all the things that goes into that? So it's something that you can engage in some self-help Work through books, through content online from professionals, though all of that is really generic work that's not unique to your own lived experiences. So you could get some assistance doing that yourself, though you won't get the most effective outcome without working with a professional.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, um, is I am someone who identify who identifies with this attachment style and I don't think, I still don't think I can <laughs> cater to my own needs or just kind of like work. I don't think I could have worked out of these habits that came from having this attachment style if it wasn't with my therapist because mm-hmm. she was able to help me identify things that I didn't even know I was doing because of um, having this attachment style. So yeah, I yeah, highly recommend um, everyone with I think with any with anything you you want a little assistance
1: um, yeah and if you think about it too even the question if maybe one of your listeners asked it's really also coming from that place of absence of secure attachment that oh, I don't know can't ask for help I need to do this by my own I can tough it out and solve my problems myself versus biologically we are designed to attach and to rely on others to help us out
0: yeah that's so true that is so true just that fear of like I don't think I need anyone to help me (laughs) but yeah sometimes we do yeah so um how can you support a partner who has this kind of attachment style
1: so you can support them by highlighting verbal and nonverbal cues that they're activated. So, like for example, um, hey, I notice you're withdrawing. Is something going on? Do you want to share something with me, or you know any other? protest behaviors, and by protest behaviors, I'm sorry, I didn't clarify it earlier, I only gave examples. These are behaviors that people engage in to try to get their needs met, but they're really received by others as offensive behaviors. So the person is just caught up in the cycle of that. So like incessantly texting, calling, when the person's like, I'm at work, or I'm out with my friends, you know, nothing's going on, nothing to worry about. So it's really highlighting those keys, like, hey, I noticed that you did this thing. Is there something you'd like us to talk about? So not making an assumption, it's more like highlighting what's coming up. So definitely that, um, showing concern and regard. I referenced earlier that we all have needs. So a partner could be helpful in highlighting that, hey, I'm still here providing reassurance, it's okay, we can work through this. So providing reassurance, a third one, I would say it's giving the person time, though, again, the partner that's providing all this to help the person with the attachment style that we're talking about, they would also need to maintain their own boundaries that it doesn't become enmeshed or unhealthy. So it's communicating, hey, this is what's happening for me when you engage in that behavior. I don't like it. So those I statements, I don't like it when this this behavior occurs because it makes me feel this way. How can we work through it together?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you said about just kind of, kind of taking a step back too and caring about catering to yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. Really important because it can become a lot um, when trying to help someone. And, and sometimes we kind of get invested in helping our partner and then mm-hmm. we lose ourselves. So that's, that's really important. Yeah.
1: And to your one of your earlier series or someone who i know we're not talking about this but someone who may present with the anxious attachment style if they're not taking care of themselves is that's where they become a niche that they have to do so much for fear that the person will leave or abandon than someone that's more secure in their attachment going to say i have boundaries yeah. and these boundaries are not something to hurt you it's to ensure that we're in a healthy place right so it's reminding
0: of those to
1: help the person
0: yeah um so people with a disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment style they have some um obviously they have uh very complex relationships with their caregivers or parents some of them some some people may um how would you um like what Uh, information would you give to some listeners who want to kind of address these issues with their parents uh you know they may have listened to this or they may have Mm -hmm. researched on detachment styles and they may want to kind of bring it up to their parents um would you recommend that or if if the person still does want to do it without a recommendation what kind of um knowledge would you give to them So
1: it depends. Again, it's not a one size fits all in that you would have to assess the relationship that you have with your parents or caregivers who may not be biological parents in terms of do they have a willingness to engage in this repairing work for attachment wounds that were created in childhood if a parent is not willing to do that just like if a partner is not willing to do that and you continually force the issue you're continuing to hurt yourself and create more attachment wounds so that's the first thing you need to assess the willingness of the other party if parents aren't or caregivers are not interested or motivated to do that work then it's on you to radically accept that you want them to do that work, and they don't want to, and you can still engage in your healing work through your other relationships. On the opposite end, if you have parents who are there great, and they want to do this work, good for you. Um, Maybe start teaching them what you've learned, so they can look at what led to them as parents developing this attachment style and learning to parent through these attachment wounds. Ideally, family therapy could be helpful if you have the resources to do so
0: right yeah that can definitely be helpful family therapy um it can be difficult at first like you said especially if you don't have parents who are as open but um healing can happen without without kind of bringing it up to your parents and I think that was something that was hard for me to accept in the beginning because I'm a person, I, okay, I, I learned something, now I wanna bring it to you and tell you why. But I had to realize that that might, that's not the closure that I think I need, you know? Like I, I don't necessarily have to educate um, the person who inflicted these wounds that they did because sometimes they're not even aware of why. Um, and sometimes it's, it's so deep, it's so generational that they're just repeating a cycle. So it's kind of just, it's like they're on autopilot. So if you bring it to them, they're not even sure, um, kind of how to, how to even address it. So you're opening another box that might kind of delay your healing. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, how can attachment styles show up in people with, uh, mental health, mental illnesses or mental health disorders? I know a lot of people were asking me, um, um, people with ADHD, um, and also people with autism. How can they navigate through healing when it comes to attachment styles?
1: Yeah. So um, for the neurodivergent folks, oftentimes one of the things they, travel, they struggle with sorry, is social cues or interpreting behaviors in social settings. So that would be one of the things where it's like beefing up their social skills and their social skills to recognize the difference with someone rejecting or abandoning them and someone, again, just having boundaries, wanting their own space. So doing that, also working on communication skills. Neurodivergent people, it's not that they need completely different skills from non-neurodivergent folks. It's just that their approach to it needs to be modified. So the communication skills, learning social cues, they're going to be similar. The difference is that they may not be able to maybe work on several relationships at the same time as they're practicing to improve their attachment style, whereas non-neurodivergent folks can do that. They can be mindful of it in the workplace, in their friendships, in the partnerships with um, parents someone that's neurodivergent may need to isolate it and first pick, like oh maybe I'm going to work on this with this one friend and then transition it over into different relationships so that's one of the ways right yeah thank you
0: um so what therapy style would you recommend um to someone with this attachment style
1: So narrative therapy for people who prefer traditional psychotherapy or traditional talk therapy, narrative therapy is helpful in that it helps someone identify some of the faulty narratives that they may have picked up along the way. Oftentimes it begins in childhood and then becomes internalized over time. So that would be a good one. Two others that I'm thinking about would be internal family systems so with internal family systems in a nutshell what's happening is that you're getting in touch with the different parts of yourself so younger parts more mature parts and finding where these attachment wounds exist and what the older part is doing to then protect these younger parts that experienced the first wounding so internal family systems definitely a good one and then EMDR therapy if there is some trauma that's present that led to these attachment wounds that led to anxious avoidant or fearful disorganized attachment style any of those three therapy approaches I think would be really
0: helpful yeah yeah thank you definitely um what you said kind of Gave me um, another another thought about the trauma associated with having this specific attachment style. Um, I know for me, just to kind of get vulnerable, I uh, dealt with a lot of uh, verbal abuse from, from my parent. And so that kind of is what led me into having this attachment style. What kind of information would you give to a client who were, was kind of still in that abusive cycle with their parent? Because I know a lot of people who are still unfortunately it was easy for me to kind of not be with that parent but some people they don't have that luxury some people are still in contact even as adults are still in contact with the parent who conflicted abuse upon them um what kind of information would you give to a client who was trying to heal or move out of this attachment style but they're still in contact with that parent
1: well thank you for sharing that with me um something that I'd suggest is that it's very difficult to heal from abuse while abuse continues to happen. So if you're in an environment or in a relationship that perpetuated abuse and attachment wounding, it's going to be very difficult for you to move from that because you're going to have your defenses up because you're exposed to that. And the defenses, though they may be helpful, with that parent or that person it isn't effective for the other relationships that you have in your life there's going to be some spillover into those so the first thing to think about is what kind of space do you want to create now I'm not saying you have to remove that person from your life indefinitely though there may need to be some level of space that's created maybe you don't call them every day maybe you don't call them every week maybe it's once every two weeks once in a while where you maintain the relationship though you have enough space from it that to then calm your nervous system that gets activated by these interactions so I'd say that's the most important thing, thing to consider in the beginning
0: yeah I I 100% agree with that um, and it can be really hard to, because you're so used to something, it can be hard to pull back, especially with someone who um, has abusive tendencies, um, because I've noticed with uh, with myself and even with other people within my family, even as you get older, the abuse may not be as, um, as prevalent as it was when you were a child, but it's still there mm-hmm. in some ways that that your parent or your caregiver may know how to trigger you. Um, and so, like you said, pulling back and just kind of recognizing that can, can really help.
1: Yeah. The other thing too, as we age, sometimes, especially in the black and brown community, as we age, there's the expectation of reverence and cure that's expected to be provided to our caregivers yeah so there's that and then there's the other piece that because now time has passed through aging sometimes there's invalidation that comes up that oh that was a long time ago when whenever trauma occurs we don't remember it at or present age we remember it at the age that it happened so that's how things activate it so even though time has Past, if no healing work has been done that's still a very present wound
0: that's there right that's so true and just what you said about this um how you know as we get older it's this unspoken agreement or this just unspoken Mm -hmm. um requirement that we are required to do to take care of our parents now and we kind of have to forget those wounds and those um traumatic things and put them on the back burner and that kind of I think makes it like you said it it, it makes it worse because it's a unhealed it's an unhealed wound and now with these requirements that are set in stone you have that you didn't agree to you kind of have to ignore those and it just it just creates a cycle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, any you gave a lot of great information today. What other final thoughts do you have when it comes to this attachment style? So I can't say this enough.
1: If you don't have a secure attachment style, that is okay. Don't demonize yourself. There is still hope that you can improve the attachment style you have to feel safe, to feel love, to get your needs met. Also that if you are not from a family system where secure attachment was displayed, as an adult, you can start exposing yourself to that in friendships and the type of content, movies, podcasts that you engage with, that you get to start seeing that reflected back to you. So you're being primed to recognize that there are other options. This isn't the be-all and all for you to get your need met for safety.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I I really, I really appreciated your information. I actually learned a lot from a lot of things that you said today. Um, so I know this information will be great for my listeners because they had all these questions and a lot of I think one of the most important things you said today was like what you just repeated just having compassion for yourself and just recognizing that it's okay if you don't have a secure attachment style because i think what's different between this attachment style and the other uh, the other two is that um or the other three is that this one involves a little more uh this is just more misunderstood yes and it's more misunderstood so people can tend to feel like, okay, I don't fit with the anxious or the avoidant and I, I fit with this. So that means I'm just double, like I'm, I'm, I am I'm have issues on top of issues. Um, and like I said, I, I felt that way at first too, when I first um, yeah. discovered this, but having compassion and just giving yourself grace um, and just understanding that it's normal is, I think it's really key when it comes to shifting or moving out of this attachment style
1: yeah well thank you for having me I enjoy talking with you and you're doing good work I'm sure all your listeners are getting some healing qualities from this that you're putting information out there and so vulnerable for sharing your own story
0: yes thank you so much thank you for all your insight Um, please tell the listeners like where they can find you where they can connect with you
1: can connect with me on social, whether Instagram or TikTok for my professional folks. Also on LinkedIn, I put content out there. So you can search for me by name, Nicola Pierce-Smith, or Melanated Woman's Health.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nicola. It's been amazing um, hearing your insights, hearing your professional um, words of wisdom. Um, thank you so much. And please, everyone, please connect with her at her Instagram posts have helped me and I know they have helped so many other people. So please connect with her on Instagram. Um, Her content is great. And we appreciate all your insight for this episode. And hopefully we can hear you soon in another episode later down the line, because I know you have even more great insight. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. All right, y'all, this concludes episode three, which also concludes the Attachment Style series. Thank you all so much. You have brought so much life to the series, and I'm so grateful for all the feedback, all the questions, the comments. Like, it makes me extremely grateful and happy. Please come back for the next episode. Make sure you're taking care of yourselves, and I'll see y'all later.